Okay, I think um, if we can just open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we've just had such an awesome time of, of worship. And we just thank you, Lord, for, um, for music. We thank you for your creation. We thank you for the reminder, Lord, that you have made us much more than we can be. And Father, I just pray that as we, as we go into your word today, that you'll really bless it, Father, that truth will be spoken and that insight will be had, that we'll have an understanding of your wisdom, Father, an understanding of your word. And Father, what we're going to be talking about today is quite a difficult subject. And I just pray, Father, that we might just have hearts that are open and minds that will, that will really hear your word. And Father, I just pray that at some point we might just have a glimpse of heaven, Lord, to see your kingdom here on earth, to really feel your power and to feel your love. And so, Father, we just commit the rest of the service into your hands, and we just praise and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, it's, um, it really is a privilege to, um, to be here today and to, really, to be able to share God's word. And the one thing that really strikes me about, about uh, Musenberg in, in a sense is just there really is a desire to, to really understand God's word. <clears throat> there really is a desire here to really understand what it is that God's actually saying. And as you do that, I just feel we just open ourselves up more and more to, to worship. And that's really great. Um, it is a beautiful day, um, and I just really sense the beginning of spring. It's like a new beginning. It's a new going into a new season. And um, in many ways, it's really, really good to really feel every day when we wake up that we're going into a new season, to really feel God's love and to really recognize that we are firmly planted as Christians in God's kingdom here on earth. <clears throat> now, what we're going to be doing, you know, we're in the middle as... as is that me? Yo, I'm noisy. Okay. Shall I just swap? It's going to be easier. Okay. Can you hear? Okay. Thanks, Brad. Can you hear me now? Okay, that's wonderful. <clears throat> um, we're in the middle of a series on, on the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is just such a special bit of Scripture, and I'm sure it's the same for all of you. Um, each time I go to it, it's like slightly different, you know. And that's the wonderful thing about God's Word. There's just layer of layer upon layer upon layer. And, it, you know, it, this is going to sound a little weird, but it's a bit like a carrot, you know. You know, you can take a carrot and you can peel it and you can have it for as a salad. And it's nice and crunchy and it's really nice in a salad. Or at other times you can kind of boil it and you can make it look really smart with a roast and it's delicious with a roast. But it's still a carrot, you know. At other times you can put sugar with it and a little bit of butter and it's really, really lovely. And my very favorite is um, to take a bit of orange peel and spice and boil it with that. But it's still a carrot. It's still an orange what is the taproot, isn't it? You know, and, and that's the same thing with, with the Sermon on the Mount. Each time I go to it, it's kind of really 
slightly different, and it's just speaking to me at a different time in my life. And I think that that's, that, that's pretty, pretty important for me, and that's why we, I keep coming back to it. Um, the, the subject that I'm going to do today is talking about being a citizen of the kingdom of God. In many ways, that's what the Beatitudes all about. It's like inducting us. It's like when you go to become a citizen of Britain or America or wherever, you kind of, before you become a citizen, you get inducted into it. You're coming from one country and you're going to become a citizen of another. And so you learn what the laws are, you learn how you are to behave, you're understanding a little bit more about what it means to be a citizen of whatever country it is. And to me, the Beatitudes is a little bit like that. Jesus is taking the disciples and he's saying, to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, here are some of the things you've got to clearly understand. And I think, you know, the one bit that I really struggle with sometimes is when I'm on the road and I'm going from the M5 and I'm trying to get onto the N1 and I watch all these people that overtake me and kind of push in in front of me and it starts getting me really mad. You know, and it's so easy for me to like really speed up and keep as close to the person in front so I don't let them in. You know, and this, that little bit of vengeance in me is just kind of creeps in. Um, and it's the same thing at, at, at work sometimes. Somebody says something to you and you think, hey, that's not right. You know, you know I think I've got to get back at you. You know, that, that sort of spirit often bubbles up in me at times and I really kind of get that little bit of vengeance. So... The subject I'm going to talk about today is an eye for an eye, which a lot of it is around vengeance. Um, and, and it is a difficult subject. So if I had have put up here in the, and it had appeared in the bulletin, we're going to talk about an eye for an eye. I'm not sure many of you would have been here today. I think, you know, it's not, it's not an easy subject and not a particularly popular one. Because it really is something that I think a lot of us actually, in fact, I'm pretty sure all of us struggle with at times. It must be about six months ago that I heard on, it was Cape Talk Radio, and I'm sure some of you can remember this. It was a cyclist who was riding on the road. Clearly he did something that annoyed some driver, and the driver swerved off, pulled the cyclist off the road, and they had a really aggressive altercation. Um, I think there might have been, a, a, he might have punched him, there was some physical act in, involved in it, and then the driver drove off. And the cyclist, instead of actually, you know, taking the number down, following up, which is what he did, um, and charging the, the person for assault, actually tracked him down and invited him for coffee. And that was really weird. And strangely enough, the driver came and had a cup of coffee with the cyclist, and they had a discussion, and he explained what the situation was. And at the end of the time, the two of them understood each other, and they shook hands and parted. And I just found that an awesome story and quite, quite strange. But why did it actually make Cape Town, Cape Talk Radio? And I think it even made the newspaper at one time. And the reason is, is because it's so countercultural. It's, it's not what normally happens. Normally when the cyclist swerves out or you're the cyclist, you shake your fist or there's a, you hoot your horn. Um, but, but never this sort of actual act of actually trying to understand the other person. Because our culture is all about 
me, this culture we live in, it's all about respecting me and, and I'll do what I want to do and please don't interfere with me and just leave me alone. You know, it's just um, so very different that that cyclist behaved and I think it was a wonderful story. If, if we take a look at this, um, the next slide, um, and some of them we'll find amusing, you know, like a buttonhole that says, don't get mad, get even. And the little shopping bag that says, don't get mad, get even, but be sneaky about it. I don't know if you can read it there. And then, then it's quite a well-known saying that, that Muhammad Ali said, where he said, um, I don't believe in this, I can't, and my American accent's terrible, so I'm not going to even try. <laughs> I don't, don't believe in this turn the other cheek business. I've got no respect for a man that won't hit back. I'm no cheek turner. You kill my dog, then you better hide your cat. You know, I just, and, and it's just, it is such a characteristic that is so deeply embedded in our, in our culture about wanting to get even, that is totally accepted. Um, you know, when we have a look at television shows and we see the heroes, you know, the heroes go out to get vengeance. And it's all kind of part of a culture that's around us all the time. But if we take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's a little different, and I think Jesus is saying that's not the culture that you're going to experience in the kingdom of God. That's not the culture that I actually want. Um, you know, it, it really, he's really asking us to do something different. Um, and I've often found that when people talk about the eye for an eye law, which appears in Leviticus and Exodus and, and so on, they'll just say, this is an example of how harsh and cruel the Bible can be, how dreadful it actually is. Um, and then you get the Muhammad Ali types who basically are saying, you know, they really criticize the Christians um, and say, well, just look at you Christians. All you do is you're a doormat, you know, so you're actually prepared. You just turn the other cheek, you know, really, really wimpish. But I hope that by the end of the message, I'll have convinced you that, it's, that the law is neither cruel and harsh and neither is it wimpish. Um, it's the very polar end of being a doormat. I really do believe that we at Connect and Musenberg have a very, very clear understanding that Jesus came to earth and really inaugurated um, the kingdom of God here on earth. So I don't really think I need to spend some time on that. Um, but what, what I do want to spend some time on is the type of behavior that we need to exhibit in it, particularly where it comes to getting even. Um, and, and here you can see this is the scripture that we normally, or well, one of the scriptures, one of the many scriptures that we do use to, to show that, where it says um, Jesus is being spoken to by the Pharisees. They ask him a trick question. And, you know, and Jesus replied that the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, okay? Nor will pay people say, here it is or there it is, um, because the kingdom of God is actually here in your midst. And I think, I think that, that is something, it is, it is part of our culture, and I think we recognize that here. And in Genesis 1.28, God created mankind in his image and he instructed them on his behalf to subdue the earth and to be fruitful. And in a sense, God created man or mankind in his image to stand on the threshold 
between heaven and earth and to actively reflect God's love and loving care into the world. That's one of the roles that we have. And similarly, to reflect the world's praise and worship back to God. And this whole question of reflection um, is something, it was something that Rachel said the other evening that really struck me that we're a mirror, that we actually should be reflecting Jesus. And it's really, really stayed with me. And, and that is one of the things that I really do believe I want to, to pass on to you, is we're reflecting God's love into the world, and similarly we reflect the praise of the world back to, to God. And I think it's, it's quite important. So unfortunately, you know, mankind's role of being created in the image of God and actually um, going out uh, to actually subdue and to, to rule the world was really displaced as a result of sin. And as a result, as we know, Adam and Eve had to leave the garden God had given them in the fall. Um, at the same time as this happened, as this happened, at the fall, God immediately kicked in a plan. He wasn't going to kind of have um, Adam and Eve ruin his overall awesome plan that he had. Um, and he kicked in a plan to bring mankind back into his or her correct relationship for which he created them to be the image of God. And his plan, I think, as we all know, is the atoning role of Jesus who took the sin of mankind into his flesh on the cross and died. And so as that happened, sin died with it. And Jesus, having rid sin, um, mankind's sin, defeated death, and he rose again. Um, and this event brought mankind, those who believe in Jesus and accepted him, into the position where they're unified with God again. And once again, mankind, through Jesus, has access to the kingdom of God. And that's quite an important point. Um, because as we enter the kingdom of God, there is a behavior that we really do need to start exhibiting. And as we came into the kingdom of God, he gave us the authority, he gave us the power, and he gave us the instruction to go out and continue to actually extend the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, that kingdom of God is residing in a world where there is sin and there is the power of darkness. And that means that we are all engaged in a battle and actually having to overcome that sin. So that power and that authority is required to extend, extend the kingdom's God. And we have been born into the middle of a battle. Now, I think the, the early church knew this, and I think most of the people here in Musenberg know this and realize that we are in a battle. And one of the scriptures that, that um, I'm going to refer to now is Zechariah 17. Um, and it says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. Now, both the Jews looked at that scripture and uh, the Christians have looked at the scripture and realized that there will be a battle that the Lord will lead. And N.T. Wright points out that in Jerusalem, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, there were many Jews who actually believed that there would be a physical colossal battle, that God would come to earth and would actually lead the Jews in a fight against all the pagans and the heathen. 
and that when they did that, they would actually be acquiring power, they will get land, they'll get treasures, they'll get building, and so on. Um, and, and you can understand why they felt that, because about 160 years earlier, um, there had been the Maccabean Rebellion, where a group of Jews had actually fought against, um, it was a Hellenic Empire. It was a Greek culture that covered that whole area, and they had actually defeated the, um, the, the you know, that, that particular empire. And um, they, it was almost like a bit of a, you know, a trial run before the great big battle that was about to occur. Um, and that, act, that battle, the Jews actually weakened that empire, and 100 years later, the Roman Empire took it over. So they were looking forward to a really bloody battle and were expecting to, to have a major military attack. However, without actually realizing it, that had actually occurred. The king had come, um, and they had missed the real event. And it wasn't something they could point at and say, it's here or it's there. The king had come to earth, and he was leading the people in a battle. Um, and it was, a very, it was a battle against a very, very significant enemy. Now, the, the army that's, that, that, that Jesus is leading, or the king is leading, isn't, hasn't got chariots and swords and shields and tanks and artillery and, and air force. It's actually an army that he sends in, where he sends in the meek and he sends in the mourners, he sends in the broken-hearted and the ones hungry with righteousness and the peacemakers. It's a very, very different army that he sends in. And that army needs to be trained in a very different way. The battle wasn't over land and resources. It wasn't over treasures and political power, all the things we can see and touch in, and on earth. Instead, it's over hearts and souls which can't be seen. Now, I said not, not all of the Jews believed this. The early church and the early Christians clearly did that. They realized that they were engaged in the battle. Um, and in a sense, the Sermon on the Mount was the preparation for those early, early Christians to realize what was about to happen to them. Um, and, and Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, was actually inducting them into the citizenship of the kingdom of God, but actually inducting them into the army that would fight this enemy. And the enemy and the fight was all, was all about winning the hearts. The problem with the Pharisees and the scribes is that they really concentrated and taught on the external aspects of, of worship and of life, on rules and little bits of scripture. And in so doing, they completely missed the heart of God. Um, and consequently, in many respects, I think I'll show you later on, they were actually fighting on the wrong side. Um, and this was particularly true of their teaching of an eye for an eye. And the Pharisees and the scribes, as you know, were a particular group of people that Jesus always attacked. I mean, these were the scholars of the law. They were the ones who'd studied you know, the scriptures. They were the ones who had huge head knowledge of what of what God wanted, but the head knowledge never actually went down to the heart, and that was really one of the um, huge problems. Um, so during the Sermon of the Mount, 
um, as, he, as he's going through it, Jesus begins an attack on the Pharisees, and he issues a challenge directly to the, um, to the Jews who had been taught by the Pharisees. And in the challenge, he says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you know, you can imagine suddenly being told that, that actually the people who have been taught you, teaching you about the law, about um, holy living and holy life, you've now actually got to be better than them. Um, it must have just seemed completely unattainable. Um, but in the context of what Jesus starts speaking about, it becomes a wholly attainable goal. Um, and it was a challenge that could be achieved. Jesus was continually always contemptuous of the Pharisees, um, and he wasn't particularly, particularly soft on them. He said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You look like whitewashed um, tombs, but, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of bones of the dead and everything that's unclean. And in the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Um, part of the problem with the Pharisees, and one of the reasons why they were behaving like this, is that they had really just gone through a period, I don't know, I think it was of about 400 years, um, between the kind of the destruction of Israel and the coming of Jesus. And really, they were subject to foreign rule all the time. And... One of the reasons they felt that it happened was simply because of the sin of Israel and basically idolatry. You know, and if you read through Chronicles and Kings, you'll see idolatry is a problem that keeps coming back and back and back again with the Israelites. And so what they started to do was they created little rules, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules. And in a way, in my mind, what they were doing is they were creating the structure of rules which were held together by little bolts of scripture. Um, and it was almost like a, like a Tower of Babylon. Um, is that, sorry, Tower of Babel, sorry. Thanks to my wife. <laughs> Um, a Tower of Babel trying to get to heaven by all these rules all the time. And they completely missed the whole purpose and understanding of what, what God wanted. Um, but let's take a look at this eye for an eye scripture. And it is something which we can't avoid. It sits there. It sits there in Exodus. It sits there in Deuteronomy. It sits there in Leviticus. And it's very clear. And it's something we have to accept that that's what God was saying. You know, where, where he says in Exodus, but if there is serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. Oh, my word, this just gets dreadful. You know, foot for foot and so on. It's awful. Burn for burn, wound for wound. And that's in Exodus. It's right there. And in Deuteronomy, it says, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And Leviticus is really quite graphic. It's fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And, and it's awful. It really, really is. And there's no doubt it is an incontrovertible law that we cannot ignore. And so in teaching this 
these little bits of scripture, the Pharisees couldn't be faulted. And it seems to be harsh. I mean, can you imagine in terms of this law, if this is what they're teaching, and they're taking this and they're saying this is what you've got to implement, it means that if you're playing hockey or soccer and you accidentally hit somebody with your hockey stick on the shin or kick them, they have the right to turn around and say, stand there and kick you back. <laughs> I mean, it's awful. Or, or imagine you accidentally break the person's leg through really an accident. You know, they can pop around to your house with a hammer and say, stand there and smash your leg in terms of this. I mean, it's awful. And it just seems to be at odds with a loving and caring God. And the question is, why, why was it actually given? Well, I think if you look at the full context of Scripture, you begin to, to see it. And we'll just go through this here, and it's Deuteronomy 19. Okay. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand before the presence of the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and so on and so on. So the eye-for-an-eye rule wasn't about taking retribution and about vengeance. It was a law that was to be administered within the judicial system that God had set, set up. It's the same thing. We have a magistrate's court. We have, a, court, we have a, a, a high court. And within the magistrate's court, there are certain punishments that are, are there for certain crimes. And that's essentially what, what Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy were about. Before any punishment could be meted out, an eye for an eye could be meted out. It, was, it required judges to sit down, two or more people to come before the judge who were duly appointed. Um, it was to be thoroughly investigated, which would mean examining the testimony of people and witnesses. The judge was to consider the facts and then make a decision as to whether or not punishment was warranted. The punishment, in essence, was to fit the crime not to exceed it. In other words, the eye for an eye law was that you don't take a hand and a leg and an ear and an eye for an eye. It was an eye for an eye. And it still seems pretty, pretty, pretty rough. But um, if we take a look at Exodus 19:22 to 25, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. So in a sense, this was the extreme punishment that was to be meted out. Um, and there were limits to that punishment that the court could give, much as our courts limit the punishment that can be given today. So the effect of this law was to actually stop the excessive punishment that was being meted out at that particular time. Um, this is not something that I naturally knew. I had to look it up. But it, the Hammurabic law of the Second um, Babylonian Empire um, was absolutely awful. So, you know, if, if I did something wrong that warranted death, then I was killed, my wife was killed, and my children were killed as a result of that. So the Hammurabic law was a very excessive law. And that was the type of punishment that was being meted out at the time. So God was saying, you don't do that. 
The punishment must fit the crime. Um, also, it was there to stop people instantly taking vengeance and taking the law into their own hands, the very thing that the Pharisees were teaching. Okay. The very thing that Pharisees were teaching. And they were basically teaching extract vengeance rather than actually applying the biblical principle of ensuring that there's a judicial process, not individual access. And also, their, their teaching really contradicted the standards and the principles that God kind of set out as well. So if you go to um, and have a look at Leviticus, it said, you must not take vengeance, nor hold a grudge against the sons of your people, and you must love your fellow man as yourself, and I am Jehovah. Vengeance is mine and retribution, and I will discipline you to the proper degree. So, so very, very clearly God is saying, you know, the vengeance is mine, you are not to take it. Um, so that was the principle of the Mosaic law. So, so punishment is something that is there. There are consequences to, to doing wrong and to sin, but it mustn't be excessive and it would be done to the proper degree. And punishment is, whether we like it or not, a strong biblical principle. And it's, it's embraced by virtually every single society that I know. And it's important to understand that the law, as interpreted by the Pharisees, was harsh and just. But the law, read in its proper context, was far from harsh and unfair. In fact, it was saying we must have fairness. It was, in fact, merciful and just. Um, and it was given to ensure that punishment meted out wasn't excessive and that it was done with due care and, ten and attention. And really... You know, as civil leaders, business leaders, leaders in, in school, in church, we need to discipline. It's an integral part of leadership. And otherwise, um, the, whatever it is that we're leading will fall into disorder. However, I strongly believe that punishment should be conducted within the parameters of the law as it's set out here in Scripture, because I think they're very solid and fair. Punishment mustn't come from a heart of vengeance and anger, nor a spirit of retribution. It shouldn't be harsh. Um, it should be done only after the deliberation of facts. And punishment must be carefully thought through. And punishment shouldn't be harsh, and neither should it be lenient. Okay. Um, when punishment is meted out, it must be carried out in a spirit of love. Now, sometimes as parents, that's pretty difficult to do because our kids really annoy us sometimes. But it's so important to actually sit back, stop before you lash out and just remember what's actually going on. And we'll talk a little bit about that very shortly. Okay, punishment, though, is often badly misused. Um, it's often done to really demonstrate power. I punish, I punish because I can. Um, is really the thing. I can remember when I went to school, it wasn't in this country, but I can remember going into Form 1 as a 13-year-old, and the prefects in the school could actually beat the 13- and 14-year-olds as part of their punishment. And my word, they really enjoyed doing it, and they meted it out quite liberally. Um, it didn't last very long. Suddenly their power was curtailed. But it, it is something that I'm sure many of us have actually experienced. You have a boss who just likes saying you do this or else. Um, or in a family, you have a father who just enjoys the whole process of punishment because he can. 
Um, the important thing is to remember that there are two main sources of, of control and, and power. And the one is the fear of punishment. I do it, I, I pay my taxes because I'm afraid of being badly fined, okay? But the other is, is love, and that's an even more powerful form of power. You exercise it when people really love what it is you're actually wanting them to do. Um, fear of punishment is the most fleeting, and I think love is the most enduring. And that love is really important, and I'm going to quickly go through this because I think people here certainly know my views on this. But it, there are two aspects of what Jesus told us that I think is critical in understanding the eye for an eye principle. Because if you don't understand it, you won't understand what Jesus says next. And the first one is really to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it is absolutely crucial to really understand the way God actually looks at us. So if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind, you begin to understand it. Now that means you're soaking yourself in loving God. And when you do that, you begin to understand the mind of God. You begin to know what he knows, begin to see what he sees. You begin to see what you really are, okay? You're something awesome. God, you're just a figment on this earth of what you really are. God loves you so deeply. And when you begin to understand what it is within yourself that God is actually loving, and you understand how gloriously you're made, and this is not... You know, this isn't um, vanity. This is understanding how God has created you. You begin to understand what it is in your neighbor, the people in society that God has actually created. You realize that they too are just a shadow of what they really are. And so your love for them just can't be helped. And that's why this law is so powerful and so important. And, and you know, we do need to know that Jesus has raised the bar of actually getting into the kingdom of heaven. And actually embodying this particular law is critical to that. It's really important. It's so important that when we do encounter people who have abused us, we encounter people who we really have had a bad time with, that actually once we've, de once we've dealt with it and we deal with it in a non-vengeful way, that we actually leave a trail of love. And that's so important. That's what you are supposed to do as a Christian in the kingdom of God. In the same way that you love your neighbors, so in a sense, you also need to have a servant heart. And that's also important in understanding um, the eye for the eye rule and the whole question of punishment. And again, I'm not going to, to go through this hugely um, because I think most people here fully understand it. Jesus said, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant, and who wants to be the first must be the slave of all. And Jesus actually demonstrated that so many times, the servant heart that's, that's so important. So you love your Lord your God, you love your neighbor, and that gives you the servant heart that's so important because that is really where the real power lies. I'm going to skip a slide. 
So let's go on now and actually see what Jesus actually says. And again, I'm saying, I'm going to repeat it. Unless you understand those two elements of it, it's going to be quite difficult to understand this. He said, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and takes your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So here, you can hear he's once again tearing apart the teaching of the Pharisees. He said, you've heard from the Pharisees, but I tell you, this is what you've got to be doing. And I think it's very important here to understand that, that Jesus isn't contradicting the Mosaic Code. He isn't, uh, he, he's describing a situation where there's a perpetrator and there's a victim. And he's, he's not saying don't take the matter to court. He's saying at the time, do not act in vengeance. He's actually addressing the victim and stating that they're not to take action. Um, the Pharisees, on the other hand, were saying, let's get even. And it was really a heart of vengeance. So now let's take a look at vengeance quickly and we'll see. Let's just unpack that a little bit. So I went to the dictionary and I looked at what vengeance was. And it said it was a, one of the definitions was it was aggressive retribution. So if we take um, aggression, aggressive, and we push it a little bit and see where that can lead us. You know, we can actually see that aggression quite easily turns into violence. We saw that with the cyclist and the motorist. Push violence a little bit, and it turns into hatred. Turn hatred a little bit, and it becomes really violent. It can turn into murder. So that's the path that the whole question of aggression, which comes out of vengeance, can lead you. If we go on to have a look at retribution... We take retribution and we push it a little bit and we understand it a bit more. A lot of it is selfishness. It's because you've, uh, you've angered me, okay? And you push that a little bit and you see it's actually pride. My pride has been damaged. Push pride a little bit and you see it is, turns into idolatry. It, in a sense, is worshipping yourself. And I have to say that I do believe that this is an incredibly dangerous path, that the Pharisees were actually pushing the Jews. And you can see why I said earlier on that they were actually, in a sense, working for the other side, for the enemy. And idolatry is a particularly pernicious sin because you're replacing God with something else, which is exactly what the Jews did throughout the bulk of their history. And that's, in a sense, what the Pharisees were ultimately, without realizing it, promoting it. So if we go back to what Jesus said and have a look at Matthew 5.38, he's saying push the other way. Don't take vengeance, push the other way. Um, and the reason is because you, have, you are in the kingdom of God. You have power and you have authority. You have power and you have authority, which actually means that as the victim, you are more powerful than your perpetrator, and you have more authority than the perpetrator. You have greater understanding into the king kingdom of God. So you, in a sense, 
are stronger, have greater insight in actually dealing with the perpetrator. And so he's saying, take that abuse. Actually take it and respond and hold them in love when it actually happens. You're not being a doormat by turning the other cheek. Um, in fact, you ultimately are being a doorpost because by showing love in the same way that that cyclist did, you're actually leading them into the doorposts of the kingdom of God. And in many respects, and I'm nearly finished, it reminds me of my daughter. Now, my daughter is, a, is, a, is adopted, and um, we adopted her basically at birth. And to cut a long story short, the story was that her biological mother, while she was pregnant with my daughter, rejected her. Now, I have a strong belief, and I think it's borne out by other people, that the bonding between a mother and the, the child, the unborn child, starts happening in the womb. And I think it's very clear to me that that feeling of rejection was basically um, felt by Ash. And when she was born and when she hit the, the terrible twos, and I think most of us um, know that the twos is where all the tantrums happen, and tantrums happen as a normal process. But, but with my daughter, if you take the Richter scale of 0 to 10 of earthquakes, hers was 10 plus. You know, I mean, these were serious tantrums that wouldn't last 15 minutes. These would last hours, two to three hours, of this little child kicking and screaming and really just losing it totally. And all Jackie could do was to actually take her, hold her in her arms, and just hold her. Um, and it would get so bad at times that, um, you know, Jackie would be taking kicks and, and pushes and all the rest of it um, for two to three hours. And more than once throughout my daughter's life, I have come home to find Jackie in tears at times, simply because of the abuse she's had to take from this, this young child. But this was no fault of her own. She had been rejected by her biological mother, and the consequence and the result of that were these tantrums. Every time you said no to her, or you tried to control her or correct her, it was a feeling of rejection, and that's what was happening. Jackie understood that. You know, my poor daughter didn't. She didn't know what was actually happening. It was something which was she had no control over. It wasn't her fault. And Jackie was the adult. My daughter was the child. My, you know, Jackie knew more. She was stronger and bigger. She had insight into what was going on. And there were times when she would be, as, as she was holding my daughter, my daughter would say, you know, please help me, please help me, please help me. Clearly, she didn't know what was going on either. And, and, and essentially, um, she had to take the abuse. Now, when my daughter turned about four, the tantrums disappeared. And in fact, my daughter is now a very, very beautiful, peaceful young lady. Um, she had her moments during the puberty years, but she's a very beautiful, peaceful lady living in Hong Kong, and rather ironically, she's teaching toddlers in pre at preschool in Hong Kong at the moment, which is, which is and we're just so proud of her. But, but can, you, can, can you see that holding her in love was absolutely critical? Um, and can you begin to see why Jesus' command to love and to have a servant heart and to turn the other cheek, in a sense, absorb the, the abuse of the perpetrator becomes so important in understanding the eye for the eye law. 
And it's very similar to the way the world is today. People outside of the kingdom of God, those who don't know Jesus, really, really do not understand why they feel cut off, they, why they are subject to sin. Okay? Those of us inside the kingdom of God who know Jesus have a clear understanding of that. And we have a responsibility in the same way to demonstrate Jesus' love in all situations. And the eye for the eye situation is one of them. Now, what I find amazing about Jesus is that he didn't just tell us what we should be doing. He actually modeled it for us. And if we look at 1 Peter 2, you can see that Jesus didn't retaliate when they hurled insults at him, when he was nailed to the wooden cross. He did nothing else than entrusting himself to God. Just think about that for a moment. This is Jesus, who was part of the triune God that had created the very people who were abusing him. Okay? Um, he was the creator of the universe, and he was being falsely and unjustly accused. And surely he certainly had the ability, and in many respects the right, to extract retribution. When he was falsely accused, um, when they mocked him by putting a robe on him and, and, and thrusting a crown of thorns onto his head, um, when they lashed him with a whip that sort of tore his flesh, when he had those rough nails which were pushed through his hands and his feet on, on, the, on the cross. When, when he was thirsty, they gave him foul-tasting vinegar to drink. He never looked at his torturers. He never really said anything to them about getting back at them and punish them, punishing them. He never said, watch out and be afraid. In fact, he did the opposite. He just absorbed their sin, and he died, and he healed, and he restored. That was the model that Jesus actually left us. Surely, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we need to mirror Jesus in that type of situation and have a heart and love that just absorbs the abuse of those who don't know him. And like Jesus, instead of punishing, actually heal and actually restore people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you, and, and Lord, it's just, as I was speaking those words, I just really had insight, Lord, into the punishment that you took. That, in a sense, Father, you took the, the sins of the world. If you just look at what actually happened, Lord, you took the place of Barabbas, when you were on the cross, the thief turned to you and said, you're receiving the punishment I deserve. And Jesus just meekly and obediently went to the cross and he died. And not once did he extract vengeance. Not once did he extract retribution. And Lord, what an awesome model that is for a loving, loving God who loves each one of us. And we are just so grateful and just say thank you. And we just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, thank you for listening patiently and have an awesome rest of the Sunday. Thank you.